The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm Editor of New Civil Engineer. And in a moment, I'm going to be joined by our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Organ, and our reporter, Catherine Kennedy, to talk through what's been going on in the last month with the news. A bit later, Catherine and our Features Editor, Nadine Badu, are going to be talking about the need for action at a local level in order to meet the government's net zero targets, with a discussion on the recent report from the Net Zero Infrastructure Industry Coalition with Mont McDonald's, Claire Wildfire and Luke Strickland. So hi Rob, hi Catherine. Hi Claire. Hi Claire. How are you doing? I can't believe a whole month has passed since we last met up for our podcast news chat. It's been a bit of a whirlwind of news over the last few weeks with lots of government reports being published following the lifting of Herder after the local authority elections that started May. There's been a lot to absorb and a lot to report on, but let's kick off with the elections and the impact we've seen for infrastructure so far. Yeah, that's right, Claire. It was a bit of a an odd time in the six weeks or so before the elections where you sort of had no formal announcements, uh, a lot of rumours going around. And in the weeks since, like, you're right, there's been a lot of announcements made, big and small, across the country. I guess one of the biggest and, and most immediate decisions from the elections saw the new mayor of Cambridgeshire scrap the region's £2 billion autonomous metro system, which was a bit of a pet project of the outgoing mayor, James Palmer. But the plans had actually got a fair a fair way along with concept designs released a couple of months ago. In a way, it's a bit of a shame to see uh, to see the scheme axed so sort of brutally. There were some really innovative ideas in there, such as driverless pods and on-demand 24-7 Uber-style service. Which, which I was interested to see how they would develop. But uh, alas, it's fallen foul of politics. Well, one scheme which did survive the elections was the Silvertown Tunnel in East London. There was a big focus on it in the build-up to the elections, with many calling for it to be scrapped on environmental grounds or, or for there to be a review at least. However, Sadiq Khan has held on to his position and the scheme continues apace. TfL board papers which were also released after the after the elections now show that Transport for London has already spent £56 million on land acquisition with plenty of early works and piling already begun at the site. So the chances of, of that one being reviewed now seem very, very slim, I would say. And so I think tunnelling's due to start maybe early next year. So there really is not much time if, if those against it want to want to prevent it from going ahead. But I guess what strikes me in terms of, you know, whether it's Silvertown Tunnel, Cambridge Metro or or any other schemes which, you know, sort of rely on political support is this sort of wider thing that we've spoken about before in terms of should elected politicians be in charge of making infrastructure decisions which perhaps go beyond their term as, you know, mayor or prime minister or it depends how big or small the decision is if if say sean berry had won the london mayoral election there would have been an immediate immediate stop to work on the silver town tunnel and i'm not saying that's right or wrong i'm just saying should it be so 
dependent on a electoral sort of cycle, which comes back into what we've spoken about before about a potential, you know, department for infrastructure or greater powers for the National Infrastructure Commission. And um, I think that's one that we'll probably be talking about a lot more on the podcast in the months to come. Yeah, it does feel like the last month everything has started happening um, after the elections. And I suppose um, we will see more news emerging on that election impact in terms of planned projects over the next little while. Yeah, definitely. I think the other elements we've seen change, and I've already alluded to this, is with the elections done and dusted, there's been a lot of reports, meeting minutes and project announcements released that were delayed by PERDA. Rob, there have been some key developments around Crossrail, haven't there? Yep, there sure has. I think it was the Monday after the election results were announced that Crossrail began running trains through its central London tunnels. It, it took them a few days to officially announce it, but luckily for us, some of our eagle-eyed readers uh, picked up on it and tweeted it at me. So we uh, we got the scoop, as it were. It is, of course, a huge moment for Crossrail. I think it was about 15 months ago that Mark Wilde was on on the Engineers Collective. And, and even that long ago, he was stressing how important getting to trial running was. I think he described it as the number one priority for the project. So yeah, huge moment for Crossrail. It basically involves the extensive testing of the network and allows Crossrail to iron out any potential issues uh, before the line is handed over to Transport for London. The only sticking point is that before the line can be handed over, all the stations need to be handed over to Transport for London. And Crossrail's project representative Jacobs has cast a shadow of doubt on on that in its its most recent report. It said that scheduled pressures at four stations are of particular concern with work already delayed at Bond Street, Paddington, Canary Wharf and Whitechapel. It's all a consequence of the Crossrail team being so eager to get trial running underway. They've, They've deferred work at these stations, which is what TfL Commissioner Andy Byford announced at the end of last year would happen. So there is a chance that trial running will have been completed, but the stations won't be ready. And before you can hand over to TfL, the stations have to be ready and there's sort of like a 12-week countdown in for each station. So I guess that's extinguished any hope of the line opening at the back end of this year, which was sort of murmured however crossrail are still adamant that first half of 2022 is on but i think we're looking sort of nearer to may june time in 2022 than early 2022 that's my own assumption no one said that officially but my my reading between the lines would be that we're looking at the end of the first half of 2022 so this time next year we can book our tickets and have a team outing on crossrail Mm -hmm. fingers crossed yeah a late Easter party, maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> HS2 seen some major milestones in the last month as well, hasn't it? They've launched the first tunnel boring machine on the project, which will drive the one of the 16-kilometre Chiltern tunnels. And the second one's expected to be launched in June too. And closer to London, work started this month on the excavation of the station Box Rolled Oak Common, which will be the UK's largest subsurface station when it's completed. That's going to be quite amazing to see too. But that's not the only major development on the project, is it? The contract for Curzon Street Station in Birmingham has also been awarded recently, hasn't it? Yep, it has. So JV between Mason Dragados has won, has won that contract to design and build Curzon Street with a value of £570 million. It's actually their second major contract win after already scooping the Euston Station partner contract. 
there was a bit of controversy around the contract, which basically saw HS2 rip up the original tender and start again after some pushback from contractors, shall we say, on, on risk allocation. But that's all sorted now and the contract has been appointed. So, yeah, you're right. There's a, a huge amount happening on HS2 at the moment. And I guess after, you know, years of political back and forth on it, it's, it's just great to see it getting built and contractors getting on with it now. So lots of progress on phase one, and especially considering it's only just over a year since the project got noticed to proceed. But what about the next phases? Catherine, you watched the Queen's speech at the opening of Parliament, and I think that raised more questions about phase 2B, which most people know as the eastern leg, didn't it? Yes, it did. So in the speech, the Queen said that the high-speed rail crew to Manchester bill would be taken forward in the coming year, but that crew to Manchester bill is the western leg of phase 2B and the announcement contained no reference to the eastern leg, which would connect the Midlands to Leeds. So that has kind of added to the the previous fears that that the eastern leg could be mothballed or axed completely. I think it was end of last year, the DFT announced plans to split the phase 2B bill into two separate bills. And since then, there have been concerns really about that. And those fears were exacerbated as well, I suppose, by recommendations in the NIC's real needs assessment, which also recommended prioritising the Western leg to Manchester. So, yeah, the Queen's speech has not done very much to help with those fears, I don't think. On the topic of phase two, the government also published some of the responses to the public consultation on phase 2A. And it was not great, to be honest. There seems to be a lot of concern around the lack of connectivity within the regions for people living there to actually access HS2. As expected, there are lots of concerns around the environmental issues, but it's the connectivity issue that seems to be the biggest challenge. Interesting, the response was not all about people voicing their concerns. There were a number of proposals that were put forward too on respondents calling for rail lines that were axed in the 1960s by the beaching cuts to be restored, along with improved bus connections. So I think if they could overcome some of those challenges, I think there might be more support for HS2. Mm-hmm. And that um, reopening of old rail lines has really captured people's imagination as well. We've actually seen five new schemes added to the latest bids for the Restoring Your Railways Fund. So this is for funding under what would be the third and final round of that fund. So there's three new schemes in the northwest. One of those is a new station in Koppel. And then there's a one new scheme southeast, which is the reconfiguration of the Ascot to Ashvale line and then reinstatement of the Iron Bridge to Bridge North line in the West Midlands. So more happening on that and successful bids, I think, are expected to be announced this summer for that third round. And then excitingly, actually, there's been lots about bids and and what schemes are in it, but the work on the first project has actually started under that fund. So updates on the Dartmoor line between Oakhampton and Exeter have been coming through. So that will be the first line to reopen. And Network Rail has finished relaying new track and sleepers. And they have also been working on drainage and fencing. So I think services on that line are expected to restart later later this year. So that is all progressing. Yeah, while we're on the topic of rail, and I guess this comes back to the fears around the eastern leg of HS2, is uh, where's the integrated rail plan? I remember saying a couple of months ago when Perda kicked in that we were going to see it the day after the elections. We're now, you know, weeks past the elections. Where is it? Have you seen it, Claire? 
no sound of it yet. We're what, three weeks out from the elections and not seen anything yet, not even a whisper. Nothing. Early 2021, they said. And then the reason for delaying it was Perda. Fair enough. Perda's over. Why, why haven't we got it? Come on, Boris. We know you're listening. Get it out there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're all stuck in Groundhog Day. In my mind, I'm still in March 2020 with the lockdown and everything. So maybe that, that's the, the mindset there. Potentially. Who knows? Hopefully we'll see it soon. Maybe we'll be able to talk about it next month. Talking about coronavirus and the lockdown, things like that, one of the concerns that people have raised around the infrastructure led recovery from the pandemic is our ability to finance and maintain these new systems of infrastructure that are going to be put in place when we're still having issues with the infrastructure we already have. We've covered a couple of bridge stories this month where, not in the UK, but where maintenance capabilities have been questioned. Sadly, the one in Mexico City killed 23 people and injured another 79. And there was another in the US where it appears a bridge beam sheared up to two years ago, but no action was taken. Catherine, can you tell us what happened in Mexico City? Yeah, so a really awful story, this one. Um, Actually, so an overpass on Mexico City's, it was Metro Line 12, collapsed onto traffic. And faults in that Metro Line had actually been highlighted six years ago in a 2015 report by the Metro Line's investigative committee. So that was set up by the government after construction faults were discovered at 11 of the line's stations. So it is a line that has had problems and the report identified various things. So poor quality materials, sleeper defects, inadequate supervision during construction were some of the faults. It had found for, um, I mean, one specific example in the underground section of the line, it was found that material used below the rail track was made up of gravel and sand instead of concrete, which can then cause the tracks to become unstable. So it's unclear whether those faults were rectified since the 2015 report, but it is um, it is a line that, that has had challenges and has been quite controversial. Yeah, it seems pretty bad that those problems were highlighted six years ago and, you know, mm-hmm. not sure if it's actually action's been taken. Be interesting to follow that one up and see what happens with that investigation. Mm-hmm. Rob, you've been looking at the issue on the Mississippi River Bridge in the US. How did engineers inspecting the structure miss the crack last year when there's a report mentioning it in 2019? But why was no action taken in 2019? I just can't get my head around that. Yeah, well, that's the that's the question everyone wants to know the answer to. If you haven't seen the pictures of the uh, the crack, shall we call it? I mean, it's not a crack; it's completely broken in half. It's, <laughs> it's completely sheared. It's not a crack; is that you can actually see daylight yeah, through it's, it. Yeah, uh, it's almost harder to miss. You'd think as a inspector and engineer. That said, the inspector in question has now been given his P forty five or whatever you get in America and been sent on his way. It actually turns out he's missed the. We'll call it a crack for the sake of ease. He's, he missed the crack on two occasions in September 2019 and again in September last year. However, old footage which has been reviewed, uh, old drone footage, shows that the the crack was has been there at least since May 2019. So, yeah, the investigation is still ongoing. It's, it's unclear whether it had ever officially been logged as an issue, it doesn't look like it has ever been officially logged. The The drone footage was actually a, an inspection of a different part of the bridge, but they just happened to review it and it just sort of caught caught a glimpse of the crack as, as it was passing. So, yeah, that's one obviously that's quite recent and I'm sure we'll get more on why it was missed in the coming 
the coming weeks, there's actually a bridge which runs parallel to the the Interstate 40, uh, which is called the Interstate 55, which is being re-inspected now just because it had the same inspection team and processes in place. So hopefully, fingers crossed, there's nothing wrong wrong there. One thing which struck me was how quickly they've got a contractor in place on it on the bridge already, though. Repairs are already underway. Contractor was was appointed the, the following week after the crack was discovered and the bridge was closed, and they're already drawing up repair plans and hoping for a, a reopening in three months' time, which struck me as being quite an impressive response despite, you know, the failings to begin with. If only we could get the same contractor involved on Hammersmith Bridge, maybe we'd have some problems solved there. There's certainly lots of lessons to be learned from those two failures. But, I mean, I can't believe we've got this far on the podcast without mentioning Hammersmith Bridge. The saga's continuing there, though, isn't it, Rob? Yeah, exactly. If, if you know, on the uh, Mississippi River Bridge, if the if we said the reaction was fast and rapid, it's almost the exact opposite on Hammersmith Bridge, which, you know, has been closed to motorised traffic for over two years now, closed to all, all pedestrians and cyclists since August last year. And to be honest, very little's happened since then. It's another one that was used as a bit of a political football in the run-up to the election. Sean Bailey was promising all sorts of things that, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't really promise. I was hoping that there would be some form of announcement in terms of funding following the election, but we've not had that. In fact, in the last few weeks, it's emerged that engineers are still actually carrying out their inspections, which, as I said, have been ongoing since it was closed to traffic two years ago. I'm obviously not a bridge inspection engineer, so I don't know how long it takes, but it does strike me as an awfully long time, two years, to inspect a bridge. Well, by the time it's finished in July, it'll be nearly two and a half years. So I, I don't know if that's too long. What do, you, what do you think? Does that sound like a long time to you? Yeah, it definitely sounds like too long to me. Yeah. I would have thought six months they should have been able to do something, but it's quite a complicated structure, isn't it? Yeah, of course. And I think, yeah, they did the preliminary exam, uh, inspection, sorry, and now these are more detailed examinations, um, which will inform the repair plan. However, you know, the ferry service is also being delayed there now, pushed back until September at the earliest, although... I was reading just just now actually that that even that is looking like it might be a bit of a push now so probably be in the autumn at some point and the temporary double decker solution everything about that's gone quiet we don't really know what the DFT task force thinks of that we know the council is still keen on it from the interview we did with Foster and Partners and Covey it sounds like a really innovative and interesting idea whether or not it's feasible you know not for us to say or affordable probably the more important thing when it comes to Hammersmith Bridge. And it's really, really dragging on to the point where, you know, we're getting numerous letters in now from our readers saying, just knock it down and start again, which uh, I guess poses its own problems. But, you know, at this point, maybe it's not such a ridiculous suggestion. The question about whether we should hang on to heritage is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, the UK is full of listed structures that have to be preserved as they stand, but they're not really built for modern use. It's quite a challenge. What about our other ongoing story, smart motorways? Catherine, the Transport Select Committee has started to publish evidence that is gathered on smart motorways. What have we learned from that in the last month? Yeah, there have been a couple of interesting submissions to the Transport Select Committee inquiry this month. One of them is from a former Highways England control room operator, interestingly, who has said that faulty smart motorway signals and CCTV cameras are increasing the danger of the roads. 
And he also says that there are poor control room staffing levels. So his submission makes for interesting reading. He has a lot of specific examples and things in there. And then on the other side of things, figures in the in the DFT's evidence shows that lively and fatality rates between moving and stop vehicles were actually higher in 2018 and 2019 on smart motorways in comparison to conventional motorways. And that's interesting because Highways England has fairly consistently maintained that smart motorways are as safe as or safer than conventional motorways. But those figures there seem to be saying something slightly different. Admittedly, other figures in their evidence do show that in 2015, 2016 and 2017, the death rates were lower on smart motorways. So there's a lot of stuff to look into there, I think. Another interesting comparison actually in the DFT's evidence was that lively and fatality rates have actually increased on smart motorways over the last five years, whereas the rate on conventional motorways has fallen. So there's a lot in there and it it will be interesting to see what the inquiry makes of of all of that. Do you know when they're due to report on the findings? I am not. Is it the summer? I think it might be the summer, but I'm not totally sure. Okay, it'd be interesting to look into that when we get there, won't it? Mm-hmm. Another long-standing story we seem to discuss most months is Heathrow's expansion, and that seems to be much more firmly on the cars in the long term, doesn't it, following some changes there? Yeah, well, Heathrow have resumed now the purchasing of houses close to the proposed runway, so the, the airport has reopened a property hardship scheme, which it buys homes through from owners who are otherwise unable to sell them due to the prospect of the third runway. So that has restarted recently and it's interesting to see some movement there because despite the Court of Appeal's decision to overturn the block on the expansion, the the plans have been fairly slow to progress and um, given the pandemic as well. So a bit of action there this month too. It feels like there's been a lot of progress in the last month on major projects, but it's all been about the construction and less about the climate impact of that work. And that does need to be central to everything we do now. I think now will be a really good point to hand over to Nadine and Catherine, and of course our special guests, who have been looking at how that change can be best delivered effectively. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com. Thanks, Claire. So joining me and Catherine now are two very special guests, Mott McDonald's Claire Wildfire and Luke Strickland. Claire is Mott McDonald's Global Practice Lead for Cities. She combines her 30-year experience as a low-energy engineer with her experience at neighbourhood and city scale to provide insight into the technical, political, financial and behavioural aspects of sustainable development and healthy, resilient, low-carbon living. Claire is a member of the Mayor of London's Infrastructure Advisory Panel and is supporting an industry-led collaboration of infrastructure organisations supporting the UK transition to net zero. And Luke is Mott McDonald's Global Practice Leader for Environmental Assessment, and he leads a broad consultancy team in the Midlands. 
With a mixed background of environment and engineering, he is passionate about the environment we live in and seeks to achieve ambitious, sustainable outcomes across our urban infrastructure. Now, as well as all of that, Luke and Claire are also the two of the authors of a recent report by the Net Zero Infrastructure Industry Coalition called A Place-Based Approach to Net Zero. So firstly, Claire and Luke, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Great to be here. It's brilliant to have you. So can you tell us a bit about the Net Zero Infrastructure Industry Coalition um, and why it was formed back in, I believe it was 2019, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. So um, that came about because the Committee on Climate Change report from the summer of 2019 was effectively a game changer in the UK's route to net zero. And we were aware of what it was going to say because we had a colleague, Sam Friggins, who had been seconded to the Committee on Climate Change. And this is the report that said that net zero was necessary, feasible and cost effective. So for us, once we saw what it said, it was basically a transformative challenge to the to the infrastructure industry. It was heralding the removal of fossil fuels from transport, from heating, and so a change in the industry as we know. And our view was that this it wasn't going to be something where government would hold all the answers. So we believe that the skills, knowledge and insight that industry holds would be crucial to deciding on and making the changes needed. So the idea of the coalition was a call to arms to the industry to step up and meet the challenge. And the objective we had was that this was about harnessing our collective expertise to support the how of this journey. So not just the, the what needs to be done, but really bringing the knowledge of the industry from across different sectors to, to step up, meet that challenge and help make it happen. And what then is the scope of Mott McDonald's role in the coalition and who are the other partners? Okay, I'll start with the partners, because what we did, we reached out to other progressive industry players at the time and others have joined over time. But we've got sector representatives, for example, National Grid, Transport for London, Anglian Water, NG, Skanska, and we have a local authority representation from Leeds City Council. Then we wanted to bring in consultants as well. So we've got the legal consultancy, Pinsent Mason. We have KPMG, architect Hawkins Brown, and then some more cross-sector industry bodies. So the Energy Systems Catapult, the Carbon Trust, the UK Green Building Council, and UCRIC, which is the UK Collaboratorium for Research in Infrastructure and Cities. So it's um, it's a very collaborative effort. So Mont McDonald are currently providing the main leadership, but the direction is set through discussion um, via a steering committee. And the, the inputs and the topics we want to look at are driven by the, the interests of the various members. But I wanted to just make clear that all of the inputs are pro bono. So this isn't a paid service. This is those entities joining our call to arms and believing that we have a lot to offer. And wanted to do a quick shout out to the Mott McDonald, the purpose that we have set ourselves, which allows us to contribute to this sort of advocacy type operation, because our purpose, as, as re- recently set by ex- our executive chair, is to improve society by considering social outcomes in everything we do. And I feel really lucky to be part of a an organisation that allows that sort of underpinning of um, setting direction for, for people and planet, really. Yes, and you've mentioned 
kind of as part of all of that and as part of your work within the coalition is this report which was published earlier in the spring so a place-based approach to net zero and can you tell us a little bit about the report then and why exactly it focuses on cities? I would love to. Um, (laughs) So I suppose the, the starting point is that geographically cities contain a large part of our carbon footprint so if you think about just all the carbon emissions a lot of it is taking place in cities because more and more people are are living in cities and one thing that became evident early on was that despite having this the you know a large part of these emissions within their boundaries cities in the uk currently have relatively little power to directly influence the changes that were needed but they are vitally important in this journey because the successful UK net zero transition will require changes at all levels of society. So it's not just a top-down mandate. And um, cities sit in a great place between the national top-down change that's needed and the influences that individuals, businesses and communities might bring from a bottom-up perspective. And then also the transition will require change across many levels of infrastructure. The answer just do- it doesn't sit in just one place. And um, if you think about a city, it's the most complex and interconnected place where all these different types of infrastructure come together. So therefore, a city is one of the most concentrated manifestations of these systems that require that transformative change. So we set ourselves the challenge of understanding what um, cities and city authorities need from government to help them respond to their uh, climate emergencies and also how cities themselves can help government achieve the, the national agenda. And so can you give us a bit of a summary of the report's main findings? Yeah, and really we were able to articulate some of the findings into four key pillars. I mean, it was a really uh, interesting exploration of all of those issues around there and this is all about getting to net zero faster. So this is like how do we get there and implement the national ambition across the country? And we really felt that these four pillars were about collaboration between national and local government in four main areas. And so the first area was about powers. And, and really that was about a common and consistent remit for city action, that mandate to facilitate low carbon interventions, uh, where cities are best placed to accelerate that change, as Claire's just mentioned about all of the the reasons why cities are in a really great place to do that. But the second pillar was partnerships. And this was not just about, oh, we need public and private sector partnerships. These are new forms of partnership within national and local government uh, and with the private sector uh, and with community groups, actually, with the common goal of long-term resilience that comes with investment in in local sustainable approaches. These are the right solutions in the right place and partnerships to bring that about. The third one was about uh, platforms and really that's about data and and system level data to help improve integrated planning, to be able to be transparent and to be able to replicate good decisions around the place and track those outcomes, a lot like carbon reduction and health and economic benefits. And the final one was all around people, really. And this is about the need for new skills to be developed within local authorities, but across the industry as well, to manage those new powers and those partnerships and to act on those data insights that are starting to come through. And those are our four 
key findings of the report. So within those four key findings, was there anything that surprised you? Was there, were there any findings that were unexpected? Luke may have um, something to uh, add on this, but the main thing I think for us was that a lot of it made absolute sense. And the surprising thing was that it hadn't been written down before. So what we found in the response was so many people have said, thank you for writing down in an accessible and succinct way all these things that we realise we believe and find true, but it hadn't been sort of concisely set out before. I think I'd add to that that, yeah, the, the findings are quite confirmatory, really. So many of the different conversations that we've had, people, as Claire said, have come back and said, yeah, that really chimes through. I think that it's not as simple uh, as just its powers. You know, we need more powers or we need more funding. It's more multifaceted than that. And I think that's been the the interesting thing that's come out is about just the, the interplay between these different conclusions, really. It's, there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach um, to getting to net zero. And there isn't a, just one conclusion by itself that is going to get us there. It's all of these things interplay together. And maybe that shouldn't have been surprising, but it, it just it, it was really emphasised as we went through the process and the conversations for this report. Mm. And in terms of challenges, what would you say then are the current systemic barriers to cities reaching net zero carbon by 2050? Well, one... Um, One of the workshop participants said something really fascinating that pulled this all together, which was there's an interesting business case to make for systems thinking, because when systems fail, it's generally the public sector that has to pick up the bill. And so I suppose in thinking about that as a way of achieving long term beneficial change, at the moment, the issues within local authorities tend to be solved in silos. And there is limited capacity to be able to look at this in a holistic case. And also there aren't that many tools. That comes back to the data point. There aren't that many tools that allow local authorities to consistently look at and track their their carbon emissions. But not just that, but the beneficial co-benefits. Because one of the things that really strongly came out was that carbon itself and reducing carbon is not the main driver for most people. And there is a need for business, for citizens to get behind change and understand what's in it for them. And that's where this idea of co-benefits comes from in terms of, for example, benefits like air quality or, or improved health or, and safety and well-being. Those are the things that will motivate people. And that's where there is this need to look more holistically at the problems and the benefits, and then be able to look at it at that more sort of systems level. So what are the key changes you would like to see in terms of central government policy that would really help to support local authorities in meeting their net zero uh, objectives? And I think, Luke, you already mentioned that it's not enough to just say more power and devolution. It has to be something more than that. Yeah. So coming back to that point, at the moment, most of the mandate and the remit to act is top down where national policy is set up to stimulate a market response. And that most definitely is an essential part of the equation. But as discussed earlier, we've been gathering insights that show that there's a lot that cities can do if they had more of a mandate to act. And as an example, the local authorities who have declared a climate emergency, they've set out roadmaps that say, this is what we're going to do about it. But most of the action, the direct action that they can take 
is related to their own operations, so their own transport fleet or their own building stock. And they can otherwise only act in an indirect influencer for some of the more fundamental things that need to happen. So so obviously the, the report mentions the need for a national net zero framework. So what would that framework look like in, in practice? Our findings suggest, as we've said, more of a remit for action that enables some of the decisions to be made at a locally appropriate level. So that's, for example, where there's the ability to bring in solutions that might not otherwise be visible to the market, thus accelerating this much needed scale up of solutions that also drives economy of scale and reduction in price point. So so that's the, the crucial thing about why the local agenda is important rather than the mandate. And our report gives some examples of successful outcomes in both transport and heat. But the issue is that they haven't been that straightforward to, to implement because the mandate isn't there. So what the framework looks like is something where national government has enabled some of that action to be to be made and some of those decisions to be made at more of a local level but also a mechanism for sharing insights because some of the cities are front runners and they are learning lessons they're you know setting out milestones but what would be beneficial is that they also have an expectation of passing that knowledge to others because what's evident when we look at the roadmaps that the local authorities have created that the similarities across those when you compare them are much greater than the differences, which means there's an awful lot of knowledge and insight that could be synthesised and sort of put back. But at the moment, it's mainly voluntary. It's not something that's expected. So the the framework would begin to formalise some of those actions that at the moment are uh, the sort of in the nice to have space. And the report calls for this system of systems approach to city infrastructure. So can you explain a little bit about what that means? And is that kind of this more holistic, less siloed way of doing things? Absolutely. So we know and we've already said that uh, a city is a concentration of a number of complex systems. And it's the complexity of each individual system that drives some of that bias towards um, more of a siloed approach. So this is the industrial model where you break a system down into its parts so that you understand it better. However, as our systems have got more complex, the danger is that if you're only focusing on one sector, you miss out on some of the synergies with other sectors or you have unintended consequences to other other systems. And we've seen uh, in the response to the pandemic that when you make big changes, there are some unintended consequences. The, The consequences aren't evenly distributed. So... This system of systems approach is about finding synergies across systems rather than just those detailed sector-specific solutions. You still need those. This isn't an an, and or, but it's trying to hold that big picture alongside the detail as well. And that the complexity means that when, when a change is needed, especially on the scale required to achieve net zero, it's better to take a systems approach. And that's what the report and our conversations were saying. You know, this is a, a really good way of doing this. And some cities are already taking this approach. We don't want to, to minimise any of that. But treating the city as a system of systems, what that can help you to do is to prioritise interventions in a different way than might be the case when you're thinking just in terms of one system at a time. So even just considering two systems, for instance, energy and transport, might change which solutions you want to prioritise. And and, and that's that system of systems approach 
everything is urgent. We know this. And, and you know, the, the, the mandate to get to net zero from a national level is all about speed. What the systems approach helps guard against is the a kind of a fast fail. So implementing something that's not quite appropriate or actually becomes an inhibitor. What we want to do is get to kind of a good net zero where you've had the right solutions at the right time in the right places. And so what role can local authorities themselves play in terms of overcoming some of the barriers that we've already mentioned? And and if we're looking at, you know, kind of examples of local authorities at the moment, do you think that they're doing enough to collaborate and share some of that best practice with other cities? First thing to say is I think most of them are doing a great job. So citing a couple of the collaboration um, opportunities, there's UK 100, which is a group of local authorities committed to the the climate change agenda, and also PCAM, which is the Place-Based Climate Action Network. But as we said earlier, without this clear responsibility, it's primarily a voluntary exercise. So in the absence of anything that more formalises this, what local authorities maybe can think or set objectives to do is these skills to look more holistically at city issues and through through the system's lens and develop their skills and, and help their staff develop those skills. I think that's probably the, the main thing that in the current climate I would recommend. And I, I have seen that um, some of the local authorities are beginning to shift their focus on recruitment drives and things into that area. And in terms of the the challenges then for local authorities, you've maybe touched a little bit on this, but what are the main obstacles for them in taking up this task? And is there anything that can be done to help them play this role? I think, as Claire mentioned when she was talking about the coalition, we need a complete revolution almost in, in the way we think about our urban infrastructure, which has been quite set for a number of different times. And I think across the industry, not just local authorities, there is a challenge in how do we adjust ourselves to a a new reality and and, and change the way that we do business. I think that's most pronounced at local authority level because the resources and skills that they have are already incredibly stretched by and large, you know, facing challenges uh, about uh, keeping services running in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of challenging budgetary conditions and in the midst of a, a perhaps a, um, a di- different models of financing the solutions where perhaps things have been delegated or, so, or um, have been contracted out. So I think those resources and skills constraints place a real challenge. And that is an obstacle for local authorities. It, it, it's perhaps a cliche to say that it's, you know, have they got the, the headspace and the capacity to deal with some of these new issues? But that probably is one of the biggest obstacles that they face, along with many others in the industry. So in our report, we have recommended the creation of something we've called a pan-city board. And that's to provide an entity that sits between government and the individual cities. And that's sort of multifunctional, but for example, a mechanism to formalise the flow of any sort of pump priming funding that government would bring to cities to help them on this agenda with a bit more of an oversight of how that funding is being used with sort of knowledge flowing in both directions and across cities. So the the entity of the Pan City Board is, is not really a bilateral government and individual city. It's bringing the cities together 
to learn lessons, a bit like the government's energy hubs that exist at the moment. But other functions that that um, board could then fulfil are, say, this training for local authorities in the, the systems thinking, the dissemination on sort of low regrets, low regrets approaches that some of the front runner cities are developing. This is important, the promoting of a, a standardised city scale net zero measurement approach, because that doesn't exist that well developed at the moment. And finally, uh, more knowledge about how to facilitate industry partnerships and how to set them up so that they're, they're a sort of win-win and combining optimally across the assets and skills that can be shared from the from both public and private sector. And where would you say local communities come into all of this and how important is that kind of community buy-in when it comes to driving change at that local level? I think it's vital and communities themselves, citizens themselves, we are all very much part of the solution. Now one of the biggest issues is about speed. We have got to make a change in if we're going to achieve net zero by the time we we need to. And if you don't have community support, at the very least, some of the interventions that you are trying to get approval for following our current planning processes and things, you know, that that, that is going to take longer. But actually, infrastructure and technology interventions, they're only part of the solution anyway. Um, They're an enabler, but they'll be most successful when they're aligned with behaviour change. And so really, that's the key point for communities, is that we need behaviour change and and actually many of the decisions the path to getting to net zero you know it isn't easy there are trade-offs to be had we have all had to experience trade-offs in perhaps some of uh, the things we are used to do to to solve a pressing issue over the last year or so that's only going to be exacerbated and, and therefore being able to tell that story and have that collective choice at community level to say, no, this is the path we are choosing because we can see this option, you know, results in, in pain for these parts of the community and this option results in pain for, for you. But actually this middle option we can compromise on. That's really, really important in terms of if we're talking about real change and not just change at the fringes. The Committee on Climate Change report in 2019 made a great statement um, about the fact that over half of the solutions that that they that you know they'd cited to get us to net zero will require a combination of both low carbon technology and societal behavioural change in order to create that uptake because it's not just the existence of the electric vehicle or the potential for energy efficiency in the homes it is the requirement for the users to want to have those things and see that long term that's a more sort of resilient approach So, yeah, it's a great question because the the citizens angle, the citizens assemblies, the informing citizens about the direction of travel, that's all all a huge part of achieving this successful outcome. I guess it's important that the community feels that the change is happening with them as opposed to it's being done to them. Yes. Yeah. So so in in terms of some of those kind of large scale, low carbon schemes you would like to see kind of what would you in an ideal world want to see cities considering I would like to see a huge variety of solutions because the whole point of the place-based approach is that there isn't this one-size-fits-all approach. So the focus should be on the outcomes. How do we get to these outcomes? And what does that look like in our local area? A big part of that is about energy planning. So you, you see what, what have we got locally um, and what are the local problems? And then how, how do we solve that? So linking transport, place and energy planning. I, I think some of it 
you know, it, it is as simple as if you've got a flatter area, maybe there's more active travel measures to do. What What's the availability of waste heat and how can you deal with, with some of that? So it's not, well, we're not saying every solution, every city needs to have the same types of solutions. What I'd like to see is that every city is, is focused on the same outcomes, but the route there is really different. And that's that would be the place-based approach in practice. We've seen more linking up of supply and demand and across different types of energy. So linking heating with cooling via district heat and cooling networks or linking electricity now as a transport fuel. There's a lot of mix and match, which is why that setting out the locally applicable energy planning from the outset is really important. One thing that came out pretty strongly from our report when we were exploring systems in the the heat agenda was the rise of energy storage. And so bringing in storage as part of a low carbon scheme, because so it's needed to balance the unpredictable erratic nature of renewables that we're, you know, we're, we're increasingly adding to the electricity grid. And the, the value of some of the demand side systems in, in cities or assets are that they can provide energy storage in using the, the hot water systems in, in our buildings or the, even the fabric itself can act as a sort of heating and cooling buffer. So in the low carbon schemes, we will see, I think, more joining up of all these different types of assets to help us make the energy we have go further. And aside from the obvious environmental benefits, low carbon infrastructure, what are the other potential advantages uh, that is another really great question, a really important one to bring out, because this is, as, as I said earlier, this isn't just about carbon. So we can see the link between, say, reduced congestion or cleaner vehicles and air quality and health. We can see the link between active travel, cycling and walking and places, cities designed for that being the, the easiest way to get from A to B. And that having, again, a health and well-being um, angle, then the whole energy retrofit agenda, the fact that all the buildings, say nearly 30 million homes that we have in the UK, will need some form of energy retrofit. That's a jobs angle and not just um, you know a, a particular place in the country. There's a really strong levelling up that's going to be needed everywhere. And the skills need to be developed everywhere. There's um, back to the active travel. There's the higher footfall and dwell time if people are walking rather than driving through through cities and through retail areas. That leads to improved um, retail trade. I could go on, and I love this point about the the virtuous circles. But also wanted to say that this it's not always utopia. We also need to keep a really big eye out for the the vicious circles and be really careful that our planning of the introduction of some of these needs to be fair and inclusive, because otherwise it'll work for the majority, but the minority will be penalised. So just need to sort of stress that point, really. But we can do it. It's just we need to have that sort of properly tracked in our uh, solutions. I mean, with that in mind, with there are obviously so many different low carbon solutions available. How should local authorities approach that challenge of selecting the right scheme to meet their decarbonisation requirements? Well, we, we talked about the systems piece and in terms of what to prioritise, it, it is about, as Claire was just saying, solutions or interventions that have the most multiple benefits and being able to have that clear story. 
And many solutions are going to require a trade-off. And some of those are going to need a, a longer conversation with your communities, aren't they? So there's a balance to be had about quick wins, given the pace at which decarbonisation is needed and, and avoiding some of those fast fails. That's where maybe the Pan City boards could help just in terms of sharing best practice, saying this really worked uh, here in these circumstances. I think there's something also in there about the right data and having data-driven decision-making, really. You know, we are already starting to see with some of our local authority clients the power of data-driven decision-making, you know, even from a spatial perspective, just to be able to rapidly look across us at city scale and say, where is their space? <laughs> where is the biggest opportunity for rooftop solar, for example, or, or whatever it is? So there's definitely something in there about applying the data really judiciously to help, to help prioritise those areas to be looked at in more detail. But broadly, then, it's about, it's about holding those things in, in, and, and taking the biggest picture approach to it as well and saying, where are all these synergies and, 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 and which are the solutions that are likely to give us the biggest bang early on and which ones are going to take a, a bit longer, but that, you know, we can't, we have to still work through those. And obviously the rollout of these schemes does presumably require significant funding. So do you think is more government funding needed or more public-private partnerships or, or is it a bit of a combination of both? I think it, it has to be both and, doesn't it? So government funding can be the catalyst. Um, what that can do is reduce the risk to investors, you know, who might feel like contributions they're making, they're carrying all of that risk the, the thing with getting to net, net zero by a certain date is that some parts, you know, some cities and some parts of the country need to get there far sooner and therefore need to innovate and try new different things. And so you need to somehow protect cities and, and areas where they are trying new things and pioneering that other people are going are, are gonna to benefit from. I think what, what investment does at a city scale uh, it, ha- it gives you the potential to make a stronger case for that local or regional investment. So the demonstrating those place-based benefits that we've been talking about and harnessing that desire for investors to invest in their patch in a way that they might not feel able to do nationally. So I think there's that pump priming element for national government funding, uh, as well as some kind of safety net for in- innovators. But broadly, if, if you're able to make the case at a city scale, you can probably attract more private investment than you might be able to do just with that national mandate of we need to get to net zero by this time. And a really strong theme that came from our discussions was about the need to create the trust between the local authority and the investor. And that requires taking the time to understand what it looks like from the other person or the other entity's perspective and understanding maybe what the levers are. But so the local authority understanding what the private investors' levers are, what would make them want to invest in the proposition, which may not be the things that they're thinking about. So, so sort of drilling down and having that conversation and generating the trust before coming up with the proposition and the solution that came out really strongly in our conversations. Mm, so as well as that that need to create the trust, are there other barriers that you've identified to unlocking private investment then? I think a challenge is about the visibility of long-term benefits, you know, that some of these things are really hard to quantify. 
And I guess maybe that comes back to some of the, the systemic issues that we face. Our systems, especially our value systems, are often quite focused, narrowly focused on just economic benefit, for example. And if, if we think about the classic three pillars of sustainability, that's just one pillar. The other is environmental benefits and, and social benefits. So making the case for those long-term benefits, unless you do that, you will have those barriers that we, we have been currently facing. The, the key to unlocking some of that is about that compelling narrative. We've been able to prove that this these are the benefits you're getting, and it's not just... A, a transport solution leading to for, for a transport problem leading to a transport outcome because the whole conversation is far more complex than that and it's no longer good enough to only be defining uh, sector specific problems and solutions because because of these interactions especially when you start to look at that at city scale. So can you talk us through how the coalition members obviously including Mott McDonald will help kind of work towards supporting these objectives outlined in the report? Yes. So I suppose in one way, some of the outcomes where we're recommending a need for something that's happening across the national, local and and sort of private space to come together, the report is forming an evidence base in that respect for broader conversations. But in more sort of independent where where we can act, the other coalition members and ourselves are, are having conversations about it with our clients. So acting as an advocate and an integrator helping them bring together the the different concepts that the report is recommending so exploring it in more detail and I I think that the so we've set the scene in this report but there are so many different angles of it and the coalition and their intel and insights is very broad so they're there to to be able to catch a particular piece of it and develop it so for example Vincent Mason and the on the 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 legal side they're interested in progressing that and seeing whether there's there's more conversation that we can bring out of it and looking forward then do you think cop 26 later this year will have a big role to play in terms of driving change i suppose both at a national and local government level yes there is a a lot of conversation about this so cop 26 is creating that groundswell because it it's making different entities look at the opportunity and see what they can make of it. And this cities piece, the the place-based approach, is definitely on the agenda for, for a conversation. And you have to have that cascade. You have to have that international driver. You have to have that national ambition stated. And we've got that for the cascade to go through that. And so at the very least, what COP26 is doing is reinforcing all that messages that this is really important and we need to do something. Um, so, yeah, it has to it has to make a difference and it will continue to to drive momentum in this area. And so in terms of some of that change, what do you think that will look like at a local level? I mean, in a kind of ideal world, what do you imagine the, the cities of the future will look like? <laughs> Such a great, a great question. And uh, oh, to have a crystal ball. I think what we've started to do is, you know, that there is a lot of vision out there that there's no doubt about that. And we've started to create some 
visions mark kind of married to pragmatism really and look at what are some of the near-term futures we want so we've got a campaign we're, we're going through at the moment called this is the future and focusing on some specific sectors and interventions so there was one that came out about hydrogen and what i like about the is the practicality of it where saying well it might look like this in the 2020s and that this this might start to emerge in the 2030s and then by the 2040s you might be here so uh, if anybody is interested, that those are the places to start with some of those near-term visions of this is what the future might start to look like. It would be great to have some sort of crystal ball, wouldn't it, just to <laughs> see, see it all happening. Um, so with the with the reports, the, the place-based approach to net zero is one of a series um, that the coalition is working on. So can you tell us what else you're focusing on and then when we can expect to see the results of these studies? Uh, okay, so there are a couple that have been released recently. So one, the path to zero carbon heat, I think that was last year, where we were looking at the different approaches to decarbonizing the heating sector, looking at predominantly a hydrogen-led approach, an electrification-led approach, and then a hybrid, and beginning to put the meat on the bones as to if the end goal is 2050 and it looks like this, how are we going to what what will the industry have to mobilize and what will government need to be need to set in place to enable those and that was part of just lifting the lid on those different options to help understand how easy or difficult each of them was going to be to ha- try and sort of facilitate a future direction then recently so that so that one was a Mark McDonald led report with support from a number of our different coalition members. Then a recent one that's been dominantly Skanska led is called Is Our Carbon Wallet Empty? And that was released last month. And that was looking at the infrastructure pipeline and the embodied carbon that would be taken up by building the assets that are in our planned infrastructure projection, and then trying to understand what that meant in terms of knowing what we've committed to in terms of embodied carbon. And that had some pretty interesting findings. There's one that is KPMG-led that's being worked up at the moment, which is about maximising the benefits. So this is back to that co-benefit point and and not just looking at the cost of achieving this, but the looking at the, the opportunity cost of not doing it and how we can optimise the outcomes by seeing some of the other ability to monetize the the, the co-benefits angle. You also asked when are we, when can we expect to see the results? And I, I'm not totally sure. I would imagine that one will be in the next six months. And then we're beginning to think about what, where we're going to set our sights next. So lots, lots to think about going forward. Yeah. Thank you both very, very much for joining us today. I think it will be really interesting to see what impact the place-based report and those others have on government policy and these these cities of the future, whatever they look like. And there's obviously so much more we could probably discuss in terms of the net zero challenge. But sadly for today, this is all we've got time for. So for now, that concludes another episode of the Engineers Collective. And thank you all for listening in. And I hope you can join us again soon. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com.